considered by many to be among the most outstanding of living American poets, Alice Notley has amassed a body of work that includes intimate lyrics, experimental diaries, traditional genres, the postmodern series, the newly invented epic, political observation and invective, and the poem as novel. Mysteries of Small Houses was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She has received the Griffin Poetry Prize, the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Poetry, an Academy Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Lenore Marshall Prize. Grave of Light, a chronological selection of her most notable work, offers a delineation of her life and creative development. Welcome to the Bibliophile. <laughs> Thank you. I came across a quote the other day that captured my attention, and it, it goes, If you enjoy a poem, you understand it. What do you think of that? Who wrote it? <laughs> it was by Mary, I'm, I'm thinking this is the pronunciation, Rufel. She's a professor. I know who she is. I know who she is. I'm not sure I agree. I never agree with anybody. Well, that's part of your <laughs> shtick, right? Yeah. I shtick? No, I, it's just very hard to agree with a blank, uh, blanket statements about poetry. Okay. And it, Can you say that again? Yeah, it's very simple. It's if you enjoy a poem, you understand it. Uh, I don't think that's true, actually. There's a, there's a pleasure that you get from poetry. But it's a very deep pleasure. And... Uh, you can get that without understanding the poem. You don't have to understand the poem, is, is more what I would say. Yeah. You know, you don't have to get it all, and you, you can get it on subsequent readings and over a lifetime or whatever, you know, depending on how much you like it. And how, that, that deep pleasure, how, 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 uh, how deep it goes and how, how, you, how much you respond to it. Yeah, I think she's leading with the fact that enjoyment and pleasure is the most important thing about reading a poem. Well, pleasure's good. Pleasure's good, and it isn't, it isn't emphasized enough uh, in, in the way people talk about poetry, but it isn't important to talk about what poetry does. I mean, we know that there is poetry. We know that we, we want this art. It's a really ancient art. Yeah, and, and it's not it, going it's, away. It's, it's not going away. It's completely necessary to us. Uh, f f even if we have the most the, the most minuscule culture, I mean, we we still need it. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the conversation about what it is is ridiculous. You know, it, yeah. uh, I'm tired of it. <laughs> I just want people. Okay, to... point taken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then let's go with. Does do you think that language limits understanding? I don't think there's any understanding without language. I mean, to you, it's part of everything we do. It's part of this, part of who we are as a species. It's probably part of the other species too. I, it's yeah. it's part of a lot of them, and and, and you can't you can't uh, separate it from who we are and what what we do and what we do during the day. It's 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 all one thing. In the talk that you gave recently here in Ottawa, yeah, were you not remember before you were born exactly <laughs> where you didn't have any language? So how do you remember that? I did in, in the talk. There was language before you were born, remember? I do remember. I've got it right here. I talk about being in the womb, and I, uh, I talk about reading the book. 
And I, 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 I posit that there is language, and I'm also interested in finding a language that existed before, before I was conceived, before I was born, that, that is the language that holds all being together, both, both being dead and being alive. I mean, just like there is some sort of entity that is existence and non-existence at the same time. And there's probably a language that holds it together because I can't, I can't conceive of anything existing without some form of communication. And that's what science is about. Science is about molecules communicating with each other. Vibrating. That, yes, and that, that's, that's how we hold together. We hold together because our tiniest parts can communicate. Mm-hmm. And then we communicate with everyone and everything, and everything exists on a level of communication, I think. <laughs> so are you saying then that, that the alphabet that we use for that language, that's just one type of language? Well, it's one type of alphabet, yes, and it's one type of language. There are a lot of languages, there are a lot of languages that don't have alphabets. Languages, now what about your languages? Languages that haven't been written down and, and aren't, aren't associated with writing. My, I'm, I'm associated with writing, and I always have been, and it's hard for me to remember not being able to read, but theoretically I didn't read until I went to first grade, which when, when the year I turned six, and, but uh, that's, when you're, that's when you're told that you're learning to read, and you start to read. But I went into the classroom, and I was handed a book, and I could already read it. Is that right? Yes, and I never learned how to read. <laughs> I have no memory of learning how to read. I probably learned how to read because my mother read me things and I, I saw what was on the page. There are a lot of uh, simply oral languages. And those people have poetries. They all have poetry. Well, I like hearing you better than I like reading you. When After I read, peop, uh, people often come up to me and say, why can't I get that off the page? Yeah. But I have no idea why they can't. I can get things the, off the page without having heard people. Although it's always better to hear, it's always better to hear them. It unlocks the voice, and then once the voice is unlocked, you can put it. You can subsequently put it to the page. I don't think it's always better to hear them, but with some poets, it is better. And with you, I think it is for me anyway. Some poets never read their poetry aloud. And then you've never heard, there are certain poets you've never heard. Well, there's lots like of dead Keith, poets. Like, like the dead poets, like yeah. Keats or Shelley yeah. or somebody you haven't heard. Yeah, yeah. But everyone has told you they were great. So possibly you need a lot of people to tell you that I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, there's no shortage of people saying that you're great, that's for sure. Oh, well, you know, there, there's a certain amount of, of uh, discussion about it. And the, I have a lot of rivals yeah. <laughs> who yeah. don't think I'm that great. And... Uh, the Academy doesn't think I'm that great. I thought you got an Academy Award. Uh, I did. <laughs> that was because I had a friend on the committee. <laughs> Speaking of Keats, I'm going to quote just a bit of Keats here from uh, Matthew Zabruder's uh, Why Poetry that's just come out from Echo Press. Keats's great insight was that the moments of a poem function the way that a Shakespeare play does. A poem does not exist in order to get a single message across or to privilege one idea above all others. The poem places us in a state of heightened importance with a sense that everything matters intensely at the moment it is being experienced. Like the plays, what gives a great poem energy 
is the movement from one moment to the next, each moment a place to be convinced, regardless of whether it is consistent with what comes before. Well, he's trying very hard. <laughs> I don't know, you know, uh, uh, poetry and plays are really different from each other. I go to the theater a lot in, in France. Mm -hmm. Sort of the things I do, I, I, I go to the Comédie Française, and one of the things that interests me is, is that ver in verse plays, the actors become inhabited by the lines because because they're poetic lines, and so that I suppose that would back up what he's saying. It's just that I don't, I just don't think any of it needs to be said. Mm -hmm. Why not? Because poetry. Poetry is for reading. You just read it. You just sit down with a book and read it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to beat your head against the wall about it. You just read it. Okay. I know, I know that's uh, that's blocking <laughs> that's blocking you. But no, no, it's not blocking me at all. No, no, because my next but, uh, Shakespeare. I mean, a Shakespeare play is about people on stage doing things in relation to each other, and the, there's a story going on at the same time. A lot of my poetry is like that, because I write narrative poetry a lot. Mm -hmm. but, but it's uh, also moving around it's, it's, where you don't have to understand. And, and it's, yes, and it, it's, it's, it, it, there are quiet moments and noisy moments, and uh, a tremendous amount of variety. And that's, that's what we find in your poetry. Well, I, I'm heavily influenced by Shakespeare, as a matter of fact. He, he's uh, he's one of the poets that, that I paid a lot of attention to when I was young, not as a poet, but as a playwright. I started out as a, a story writer. Well, you took fiction at I took Iowa. fiction, and yeah. I've always had... Uh, I, ha I have a, a, a consciousness that, that that's always trying to come to grips with the story and whether or not it really exists, whether we live in stories or not, uh, and to what extent our uh, experience has been shaped by uh, novels and films and so on. But, but, but Shakespeare had this, you know, it's this, it's this language where he makes up words all the time. It's completely <laughs> counter to computers and spell check and everything. Mm -hmm. He was a great plagiarist as well. Well, everyone is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you pick up things from the voices around you. That's what I, I've always done. Although it's harder in France. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't use the things people say in French. You don't write in French then? No, I, I, I've tried it once or twice. I don't know the language well enough. Not the way I know English. I know, I know English really well, and I, I wouldn't be satisfied with mm -hmm. a, a poem I wrote in French. Long poems do plot and story better than prose. Yes. <laughs> because Why? Because uh, they're more concise, because poetry is more concise than prose is. Prose is flat. Poetry is is uh, vertical, prose is horizontal. Poetry gets more into a couple of words uh, than prose does. Prose is always just sort of blathering on and describing everything and finding it really important to make physical descriptions of everything. And poetry can do the physical thing in about three seconds. And the fact that uh, it doesn't necessarily convey meaning as but it does. rationally as... Uh, a, as, a prose would. That's not a problem. No, no. It's, it's just it's another genre, and it, you you kind of know what the genre is doing. And uh, what I like about narrative is, uh, as opposed to other kinds of poetry, is that it's not. You don't. God, this is really hard to say. 
it's like you you're not allowed to make the story out of language. It's you 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 still have to do something very concrete to create a narrative. You can't you can't take a word and then have it be a pun, and then have that pun suggest the next thing that happens. If you do that, you're you're not really telling a story. You're you're playing with language. And in my book, The Descent of Owlette. The rule was that I had to be able to see everything that happened, but it's still poetry. You know, it's just another kind of poetry. It's po it's poetry the way Homer Homer is poetry, mm. and Homer is poetry. You know, it, but it, it those are the Greek stories, those and these these uh, poetic dramas. That's that's uh, that's that's ancient Greek literature. It's all poetry. Yes, and you want to come before Homer? Uh, well, sometimes I say that, but I know I'm coming after Homer, so <laughs> I mean, I'm coming but right now. But you want now. to be the female poet, uh, Homer? Uh, I, I've said that. Yeah. I've said that. I, I, uh, it was very difficult to be a young, a young woman poet when I was young. There were a lot more women poets than there used to be. Mm -hmm. I had no predecessors for, so you, for who I was and, and what I needed to talk about. That's right. I mean, there were predecessors, but they didn't speak to you. There were there weren't very many of them, right? And they didn't have children. That's the thing. That's the but, thing. And I, I know I've heard I've heard you say you don't like Sylvia Plath, but she had kids. Well, she didn't live long enough to make an effect. I mean, her effect, her her effect, I think, is transitory. You know, it's just the one book. I don't, I don't know how long she'll last. I've never liked her poetry, but mm. it's mostly because I, I, I really resent her life, and I, I resent the attention that's paid to her. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't see why, why po women's poetry should be defined by a suicide who almost let her children die. And I was living in the, in the English uh, countryside near her, near where she had lived, and I had two children, and I had postpartum depression, and I didn't see why she should be the person I was supposed to look to. I hate her. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's a strong emotion. Yes, yes. Uh, you you hate her because she's more popular than you are. No, I hate her. I hated her then. I probably don't. I don't think about her much now. No, no. But then, she was what there was. That yeah. you know, she was the predecessor. She was the predecessor, and Elizabeth she, Bishop was there. She didn't have any kids. Okay. We're talking about the, the we're talking about the, we're talking about the woman who has the kids, right, right. And we're also talking about the the fact that she was a suicide. Yeah. And I don't admire her for killing herself. And it I wasn't think her that fault I, necessarily, though. No, she didn't, I, I don't think it was her choice. fault at all. But I think that people admire her for killing herself. Yeah. And I don't see That's why they should. That's a disease, should. as much as I mean, she was depressed. She was depressed, but she didn't live very long. No. And she didn't write as much as someone like Keats did, who lived as the the same short life. And so I don't know. I don't. I just. Uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't. I don't get why it's her. And I don't. I. I don't get why I have to talk about her. Uh, yeah. You know, with people, with young, with young women writers. Okay, I'll stop talking about no, her. It's okay. <laughs> you can talk about her. <laughs> you um, have a plan. <laughs> It's best to embrace the strange, and getting back to Keats, to stop irritably reaching after fact or reason. He didn't say anything about strange, did he? I don't know that he... You're, you're right. I know it was irritably uh, 
It was going was it, after reason, uh, yeah, uh, fact and reason. We're talking about negative capability now. Right? That's right. But but we're also talking about embracing the strange. He may not have said those words. He might have. He might have. But that's what we're doing yes. by not going after what's rational and not going after what's well, fact. Well, rational is just a word. In fact, yeah. it's just a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're words that define linguistic qualities, actually, rather uh, more than anything else. I, yeah. I, I like negative capability. I've Me always too. liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Embracing the strange. Well, I don't know what strange is, so I can't I can't go with that one because <laughs> I'm not I'm not too sure what's strange and what isn't. Everything seems strange to me. You did you've written way more books than Sylvia Plath. Yes, she died when she was about thirty. <laughs> I've written an enormous number of books in a lot of different genres, and she just wrote in that one little piddling genre. You know, she just wrote a few poems. And then that was the ideal of the poem, and it still is, like in the main, in mainstream culture, that you you write the tidy poem, and it looks a certain way on the page, and everyone can read it. They they know what the convention is, but that that kind of poem hasn't always been the poem. Again, going back to Homer, it was you know it was the long uh, the, the the long narrative poem that was an oral poem that was pre- presented via voice, and then Homer wrote it all down, presumably. There's, there's still a lot of, uh, no, no one is quite sure whether he existed still. Yeah, he may have been an amalgam of people. And yeah. in some ways, he, 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 I think he must have been, even if he existed. He was remembering all the previous versions of the poem and then making his own version. And then that, be, that became the definitive version because he could write, or, or someone could write. Yeah, kind of solidified it and... Yes. put it in stone. Sort but of. It's, 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 there, there are these oral traditions where, where there are poems and they're handed down from singer to singer. There's a book about this that, uh, that we used to read in my generation, the, the Singer of Tales. And it's about the Yugoslavian epics. And they work the same way. And you know a version, but every time you sing it, you improvise a little, so it's always different. But you have this tremendous memory and you memorize all of these lines. You know, it's interesting. I was talk- I, I interviewed Alex Ross, the music critic for the New Yorker. Right. And you know how we think about music today is you've got a score, and you can't well not diverge if you're, from that. Score. Not if you're a jazz musician or a, a rock musician. No, but for classical. For classical. And yet, and yet. But there's always a place where you can where you can improvise. They're, they they put a place in the 19th century. They always put exactly. A place in. They used to do it a lot more yeah. than they do or have in the last, say, hundred years or so, where you can express yourself. Yes, you were, supposed to, you were supposed to do something unique there, although the key and, and the chords and everything were given to you. But um, mm-hmm. I forget what, that, what that's called, what the, what the improvisatory sections are called. Poems place us in the middle of the inherently contradictory nature of being. Who says that? You? I think I'm going to pick that up somewhere, and I liked it. Do you like that? No. You don't think it puts us into a sort of a contradictory? No, I don't. No, okay. no. I don't think I don't think being is contradictory. That's what I th- don't think. Um, I, and I don't think poetry puts us in a contradictory relation to anything. It, it's I, unless you're talking about what society will let you do, and then how poetry lets you be 
rebellious against that. If mm. that's what you mean, then that's okay. Well, there I've got I've got disjunctions explained. So, in other words, poetry is isn't is contradictory itself, or can be. I don't, I don't know. You know, you're a, you want to make a philosophical case for something with regard to poetry, and a lot of people want to do that right now, and I don't understand. Do you know why? I don't want to make a philosophical case. No. You don't want to, you're not... No, I think I just want to... Do, you I just want to explain inform, yourself to me now. <laughs> I want to inform my reading of poetry. Yeah. And so I'm always interested in what good poets have to say about how I should read them. Or, yeah. And maybe maybe there is no answer, and maybe they don't want to tell poetry me how they should read Poetry is about them. the voice. And that's part, of, that's part of what you were saying about liking it better when I when I read it aloud. But uh, all, all poetry is about the voice, and it's about, it's about sounds, and it's about very minute relations between sounds and letters, and the pleasure that that, that, that gives you. And like singing, listening takes, to singing then. It's like singing, but you get more cognition with it. You get, mm. you, you know, there's more matter. There's a lot of matter, but it, you're, you, the reader, are inspired to another place mm-hmm. because of the way it sounds and it comes from a very deep place in us and it probably comes from the from from what it's like to be a small child uh, learning to speak and to sing and uh, you know the way, the way children respond to both uh, uh, singing and 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 poetry mm-hmm. it's it's like this 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 same thing mm-hmm. and, and poetry gives that pleasure, and a lot of contemporary poetry doesn't. Absolutely right. But and then a lot of contemporary poetry gives it in this ham-handed way. <laughs> but it's actually it's actually more subtle than that, and it's a real gift. And a lot of people that say they're poets don't have it. Mm-hmm. If if I read a poem aloud, you suddenly hear it. But if you read it aloud, you'd probably hear it too. That's probably what you're not doing right. You're not reading my poetry aloud to yourself. I have read some of your poems aloud to myself. Just in the last, I mean, I've only just become aware of your yes. poems. But no, I, 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 when I do read any poem, I'll read it out loud. Well, that's great. Poetry is the art that we are. Now, you said that. <laughs> yes, I think that we're poetry. I, th- I think that we're poetry. I think that we're we are these little these little atoms and molecules communicating mm. with each other in the same way as the parts of a poem do, uh, and I think that that's most essentially what we are. And we get sick if we don't if our if our little molecules don't communicate correctly, then we yes, get sick yes, and, and die. And poetry helps helps them to communicate. Yes, that's a very good point. I think we need to take poetry into our systems. Uh, in order to stay healthy, what I, what I, what we've been saying is part of it, but uh, poetry is still mysterious. It's more mysterious than anything else. Uh, it's a, it's a beautiful art. It's a, an amazing, a truly amazing art. I guess the, one of the concerns that I have is that there are, as you say, that there's a lot of poets that aren't really poets, and there's a there's charlatans. Yes. But there always are always saying that there are in poets. any field there are. And there so are. I want to get to well, how can you tell when you've really come across a real poet? Oh, you know, you know, you read it aloud to yourself, and it does something to you. 
Well, that gets back to the point at the very beginning about enjoying it. Um, Yes, but it's more than enjoying. It's more than that. It's a deeper pleasure than the word enjoy. That was what my problem with that statement. That uh, enjoy was a wasn't enough of a word for it. Okay. I think poetry gives you deep relaxation. Hmm. Like meditation. Yes, but it's more. It's more material. And it's beautiful. The meditation isn't beautiful. It's just your mind. Again, repeating a word or one yeah, word. Yeah. Yeah. So poetry gives you something to think about as well as to when you're relaxing. You don't have to have anything to think about. I mean, if you want that, you can have it. You could just listen to the sounds. No, you can just listen to it and be in it and have the experience of it. Mm. So the the play thing that that Matthew is talking about works there. I mean, you go to a play and you go through it, and then you come out. You come out a little different if it's a good if it's a good you performance. Do. You do. And you come out. You come out feeling elated. I I have. Well, come sometimes out. you come out feeling shattered. Shattered or late. I, yeah, you come out changed. I yes, guess. you come out changed. It's the same with a poem. Mm. You know. It's rare that that a poem will have that dramatic an impact on you, though. Um, no. <laughs> For you? I, I, I think I get it more from poetry than anything else, although I like all of the other arts. Mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. I do, and, and uh, I practice some of them, and I've written plays. I've had a play performed. Uh, I wrote a three-act play in 1985, and it was performed at La Mama in New York, and I, I sort of know what that feels like. And I, I make collages, I know, I know what it's like to, 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 to deal with the visual arts and how, how they, they work um, beside poetry. Mm. And I've written, obviously I've written stories, <laughs> you know, but I, I, always have, uh, I always have an argument with prose. Prose really annoys me, but I read a lot of it. And, and I have been a musician, um, mm-hmm. so I, I, I've, I've practiced, uh, I've practiced uh, all the arts except for dancing. What do you I play? have a creaky body. I played the piano. Hmm. I haven't played it for years and years, but uh, I was trained and I played when I was young. You've also suffered a lot. Yes, I have suffered a lot. And that's broken you open. Yes, that keeps getting repeated. <laughs> I don't, it's sort it hasn't of, it's broken sort of, you open? Yes, it has broke me open, but it's kind of weird to sit on on a couch in a in a in a hotel room and talk about being broken open. <laughs> yeah, you mean it's what it feels too personal? No, it's like it's like you. I I have to make something out of the. You took the phrase from somewhere, and then you're you're throwing it out. And I have to figure out a way to make it make sense now, but it's, you know, it's from another occasion of having said it, mm. and uh, so it's kind of naked there. Okay. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, uh, what you go through, what you go through breaks you open. It just it, it destroys you almost, depending on what your experience is. If, if you're a, you just a have poet, to survive, you, right? You survive. If you're a poet, you can talk about that experience, and you can be, you can be of use to people. Yeah, that's the, one of the motivating factors. Then is to help other people through it. It has been, yes, mm-hmm. yes, I, yes. 
for me it is. You've also said that uh, things come to you as if you're being used by the powers. Yes. Like Mozart, who was an empty vessel and yes, the word sometimes came through and he just wrote it, wrote it down? Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's very like that. But also, I have this sense that I'm fated. And that I've been, I'm fated to write these poems and that I've been kept alive at various times when I might have died in order to do this. I have this sense that I am supposed to communicate with the world of the dead, that I'm supposed to cross, you know, cross the border and go there, find out what they know, come back and tell people about it or tell them what the live people are doing. Some... It's a kind of crossing back and forth. I, and I, I do hear the voices of the dead. My father talks to me. My brother talks to me. Yeah, you've called yourself a spy for the dead. Yes, I am a spy for the dead. Except I've started telling everyone about it, so I'm not a spy anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> you just hope the Russians don't come after you. Uh, everybody spies on everyone. I, everyone's acting like the Russians are the only people doing it right now. The Americans spy on everyone oh, all yes. the time. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they wrote the book on it. <laughs> they wrote the book on it. Obama spied on Angela Merkel. You know, he had a bug in her, her cell phone. And yeah. just, nobody talks about that. No. But I think she didn't care very much. Mm-hmm. It, they were pretty you, good you only care. You only care at the point where you can use it politically to care. Mm. Yeah. It's all bullshit. <laughs> Well, poetry's not bullshit, but politics sure not, is. Yes. Yeah, you've mentioned that you had a, a terrible postpartum depression. Yes. And that there were no books about that. No, there weren't. There was no information No one talked about, about, it. about it. No, I knew nothing about it. It hit me very hard. Yeah. I had never heard of it, and then um, I had to struggle with it. It was, it was very, very difficult. And then this thing happened, which I talked about in relation to the talk that I gave the other night. I woke up one day and I saw this whole poem and I wrote. I spent the day writing it down, but the whole poem was there. I had earned the poem, it's, the, it's, in, it's in Grave of Light, it's called Your Dailiness. And it's about five pages long. And whenever I wasn't taking care of my child, I would write some more of it down and it was just there. And I saw it all. You didn't have to work, you just? Not really, no, I just had to, cut, just had to write it down. I had already written it because I had suffered. Do you think you have to suffer to be creative? I don't know. I'm not, I don't think so. But I mm. think you become more creative probably if you suffer. Mm. But if you're like Sylvia Plath and you're uh, schizophrenic, it might end, you know, the, yeah. the curtain might fall. You said for two years there's no me here. Yes. Yeah, that's good. That was what it was like to have postpartum depression. Mm. I stopped being myself. I couldn't locate myself. Yeah, I know what depression is. Severe yes. depression. Yes, you've had it. I've had it. Yes. And uh, that was the you most... can't think. You can't think. Well, you're exa- I was exhausted because I was taking care of a baby. And so the exhaustion was part of it. But I, I, I couldn't locate myself anymore. And I had been this... Really terrific self before, you know. You know, I, I, I was a good, I, I was a good self, <laughs> and I well, was a happy self, and I, uh, happy, yeah. I was very intense, vibrant, and I, I, I was good. I was like a good person, and I lost my sense that I was a good person. Yeah, you feel like you're bad. You've done something yes. wrong, or yes. you're, you're not worthy. You're not yes. worth anything. Yes. 
Yeah, you've had you've had two husbands die, and you've had your brother die. Yes, and my stepdaughter. Hmm. My stepdaughter died, and various close friends. My mother, my father. My father died when I was thirty. Mm-hmm. My mother died a few years ago. I, she lived to be ninety-three. And, uh, it was shattering to say goodbye to her because uh, I had known her so long, and uh, she was really good. Mm-hmm. She was a really good person. That explains in in part why you're such a good person. Well, I don't know if I am or not. Um, mm. And sometimes I think everyone is, but they don't know where it's located inside them. Yeah. You know, but it's somewhere there. So you, you're uh, advocating leading a messy, sorrowful life then? <laughs> I don't advocate anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's too hard to advocate. I, I think people should stop working so hard at their jobs and uh, and stop earning earning so much money and stop being interested in objects and just take it easy. <laughs> Read a few poems. Here, here. <laughs> So there are themes in your work, maybe you would debate that, but feminism is one. Yes, except I probably wouldn't call it feminism, but it's probably the the most useful word from the outside to use. Um, It's just that I've had a very hard time being taken seriously as a woman Mm. poet. But you were surrounded by male poets, right? Yes, yes, I was surrounded by male poets. My my husbands were both very good with me, uh, and Ted was very very good with me when there were no there were there were hardly any women poets, and he he saw it and recognized it. I mean, but he loved poetry, and he didn't care where it was. But a, a lot of other people just uh, people just like their power, and they like their power positions, and they don't love poetry enough. And I was a better poet than all, than any of them, mm. and uh, it was very frustrating. It still is. Well, identity politics and poetics is still like with us like, like never before. No, everything that was going on then in the, in the 60s and 70s, I don't know, it's, it's cyclical and it's repeated itself several times. Uh, the word feminism has come up as if no one, no one ever knew it before, like every 10 years that happens. And then, then I have to be asked, the, asked about the word again, it's, it's for, or, or be called it, you know. And yeah. I thought I was done with it in 1968, or earlier even. Because why? Because I was such a good poet, and I, I had my life to lead, and I knew what I was doing. But and, did you feel like and you were there are all these people and, and and women had written books like I remember reading the Second Sex when I was uh, 12, nineteen years old, and being shocked that there was this problem actually, because my father didn't treat me like uh, like I couldn't do anything, and your husbands didn't, and my husbands didn't. But, but you're I, still angry. I'm still angry. You were still angry, or were you? I don't remember being angry. Angry until the, until I was in my twenties, till after yeah. I had the kids, because of I all the prestige angry. and the power being held by the men. No, because because I wasn't taken seriously. Right, they didn't respect. You. I didn't care if they had pre- prestige and power or not, okay. because I didn't want what they had. I mean, they they had academic posi- positions and they won awards, and I didn't want that. What I wanted to do was have was make my poetry better. But I wanted to be 
absolutely taken seriously. I wanted to be allowed into the conversation. And they just dismissed and you as a woman. They dismissed me as a woman, partly because I didn't because I didn't know how to conduct their kind of conversation, and I didn't know how to break into the conversation. What does that mean? What what's their kind oh, of conversation? Oh, you know, like they're talking and they're saying this and that about poetry, and then suddenly you say something, and they just look at you, you because you didn't say it right. They don't give you room to say it right, and it, you have actually really interesting ideas, but they're, they they don't come out in the language that these guys are using. And you're just trying to break in, and you might not be be, be talking about their topic, the top, I mean, sometimes you just want to break in. Was, was it the academic jargon that they were using, or some kind of male language? It's not that. It's more like you're just not allowed in. And what about now? Um, now I can get in because everybody knows I'm good, except for the... the uh, the the keeper of the uh, of the big awards, those people don't know anything, you know. The people who give who give out the genius grants uh, and only give them to uh, to people who are professors, uh, as if you can't be a, you can only be a genius if you teach school. <laughs> it's the most hilarious thing in the world. But yeah. I like to win awards because then I get a little money, and I've never made much money. That's right. In fact, you've been really, really poor. Yes. And I'm still somewhat poor, but I'm not really, really poor now. You know, I, I have Social Security, and yeah. I have a little, a couple of little tiny pensions that are uh, that have to do with Doug. And I own two thirds of an apartment, so, and I have health care because I live in France. But I've been seriously ill. I was seriously ill a year and a half ago, so I have to stay there. I have a setup, but I never thought I would get that. I I thought that from France. I just never thought that I, I would arrive at this position of security, relative mm. security, which is being poor but still secure. I'm, I'm secure inside relative poverty. And, and I used to be totally not secure in, inside extreme poverty. And, uh, so how, I, how could you write poetry if you were petrified of being starving on the street? Uh, I never thought about it. I'm, I'm not presenting this right, and I, so I'm contradicting myself. Ted and I were horribly, horribly poor, and we had two kids. And then when he died, I had no, there was no bank account, there was no telephone. Mm -hmm. I had $23, which I had borrowed from someone to take the cat to the vet. I had nothing. You know, I had nothing. I, but, uh, and I had an apartment that I owed the rent on. And um, then my friend Ann Waldman and uh, some other people raised some money for me, and I got some survivor's benefits, and I, I kind of, I just sort of made my way, and I had more money than I had when Ted was alive. And every once in a while I would do, and I did, I did different kinds of work, this and that, very, very small things. I, uh, and and I, I gave readings, got, got fees, gave workshops. I worked for Allen Ginsberg for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, Part-time. That's frightening. Well, at the time it seemed all right. And I did that for about five years, and then I met Doug, mm. who had absolutely no comprehension of how I stayed alive. <laughs> and, uh, and then he lived with us in New York for five years, and he couldn't, he liked to work, and he couldn't, he couldn't get taken seriously because he was British. That's weird, because Ted Hughes sure got taken seriously. Well, he wasn't in the United States trying to get a job. He was somebody that everybody had been told already was really great. 
No, he he came to the states and worked as a some some kind of lecturer at. Uh, well, he had in New England. Yeah, he probably that probably did happen. He had status. But this was status. right when he was starting his yeah. career. Well, he probably had status then. There was a very particular time in the eighties when everybody was being accused of being Eurocentric, and Doug had a British accent. It's possible that if Ted Hughes had come then, he wouldn't have been. Uh, he wouldn't have had such an easy time. Hmm. Hmm. So we, uh, he was offered his old job back in Paris, and we went, we went to Paris then, and I've been there ever since. What was his old job? He worked uh, at the British Institute in Paris, which was an arm of London University. He taught uh, language and literature. He had a, a master's in applied linguistics. I learned a lot from him. Hmm. I learned a lot about sounds and, and uh, poetry and graphs, uh, raw sounds and things like that. I want to talk about uh, a couple more things. Disobedience against everything and about your your epic poem. Uh, the Descent of Alette. Descent of Alette, yeah. So what about disobedience against everything? Really... I mean that you should maintain a very healthy skepticism. People tell you what life is all the time, and uh, from the minute you're born, and that was part of what my talk was about the other day. You know that, that, that you come you come from this other place, and then you're immediately manipulated mm -hmm. and told what to do in life, and and from then on you're told what's what. But I don't think it is what's what. And I'm always trying to find out what's really there, and I can't find out what's really there unless I disobey all the injunctions and all the explanations. Yeah, you said you're trying to train yourself for 30 or 40 years. I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to believe to, anyone. Not to believe anything, yes. Anything that anyone tells me. So that must be kind of rough, not trusting anyone. Why should anyone know anything that know any of the things that they say they know? You know. Well, people who have they, got they, life they, experience, or parents, or people who've got your best interests at heart, don't you trust them? No, no, they okay. don't know what my best interests are. Your best friends don't. No, they're the, they're the people who least know. <laughs> so you're you don't have very many friends, or? Yeah, no, I have a lot of friends. I just uh, I just don't pay any attention to what they think people should do. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have had a job. I would have had a job all those years, and I, I would have become a college professor. And I would have been miserable. And I haven't been miserable. I've I've been I've suffered, but I haven't been miserable. That's good. Yeah, one of one an example of you sort of just going against everything is the fact that you did write about pregnancy and motherhood and um, things that people said you shouldn't write about, I guess. It was more like I needed to learn how to write. I needed material, and that was what I was immersed in. Mm -hmm. I needed to be able to write about what was going on in my, in, my, uh, in my life at that moment. And I was associated with these poets from the New York School uh, who, um, who knew how to incorporate daily life into their works. And I, I just used what they were doing, but applied it to uh, what, my, what my life was like and what I was going through.
And they were very useful for this. Otherwise, I would have been writing these, like, statement-y poems, you know, like Adrian Rich or somebody. You know, the, the concise sonnet-like statement of what is happening or the, the grand metaphor or something like that. But that didn't have anything to do with how I was thinking or how I was feeling or what, what was going on in my life. Do you think that's why you're so popular with, with women? It's possible. It's possible. Also, my poetry's funny. A lot of it, a lot of it's really funny. Uh, a lot of it's, it's just some wicked swear words. In there too. <laughs> yes, people like it when I swear. I haven't been swearing very much lately, because so many everybody else is swearing. So it, you know, it's not as effective. That's right. Not as shocking. Some, sometimes it's really effective, and sometimes it isn't. I think my mother didn't like it when I swore a lot in my poems, mm. but um, but she she kept track of my poems and uh, to a certain extent. And she was this woman who was a, a businesswoman who took over my father's store when he died. And it's, she, she had lines of poetry in her head. My father had lines of poetry in his head. They were ordinary people who liked poetry, among a, a lot of other things that they liked, you know. It was there, too. And um, they thought it was fine for me to be a poet. Uh, my mother would get very upset because I, w- I would say something very playful playful and she would think it was very serious and that I would have to tell her it was just words. The one time I told her it was all just words and then that helped her a lot. <laughs> that I, you know. To let go. Yes, mm. yeah. But she didn't want me to write about my brother. Oh, after he died. After he died and yeah. I had to. She asked me not to. And I said, I don't know if I'll be able to do that. And then I had a feeling that he wanted me to write about what had happened to him. And so I did. And that made you feel better? No. It was what I was supposed to do. It was I was supposed to tell people what had happened to this uh, perfectly nice man uh, who had gone to the Vietnam War, been made into a sniper, came back and had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and and died. I mean, it was it's a it's public work. It's public work that, that people need to know about it. Because what? This is what war does? This is what war does, and mm-hmm. this, this was what that war did, and there was an entire generation of men who were just really fucked up because they had gone to Vietnam. And they didn't know why. And this is what war does to people. You know, and uh, my uncle had been in the Pacific War in World War Two, and he understood what my brother was going through because he had been through it, but it wasn't as bad for him because it, it was a holy war. Well, and yeah, he was sort of accepted back home, wasn't he? He was, it was but pride. But he had the nightmares. He had the nightmares mm. for his entire life. So you must like Wilfred Owen, then. <laughs> I, I can't remember any poems by Wilfred Owen, but I probably do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure, but probably. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think of war poets I might like, but I can't think of who they are. I can't think of who any of them are. Mm. That's such another generation and such another way of speaking. It's mm-hmm. so British. I think like, uh, Wallace Stevens wrote some very good war poems, anti-war poems. Apollinaire wrote some really great poems about being in World War One because he was he was there too, and they're trench poems and people don't talk about them very much, but they're incredibly move, moving mm. and very unexpected. This might have to do with writing poems, but. You say that an indictment of logic, of common sense, away from rationality towards the forgotten and the suppressed. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing another it's one okay. at you. I know. Well, I can't. I've written a lot, and I can't remember where anything comes from. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Indictment of logic, of common sense, away from rationality and towards the forgotten and the suppressed. Yes, I think, and that's again. That again relates to the lecture I gave the other night. It's a, it's a, a reaching after this this hugely uh, su- suppressed, repressed information mm-hmm. that has to do with where we came from. But I partly got the idea for it, although I wasn't thinking about her, from Laura writing, I don't know if you know her work. I've read it a long time ago. She's with uh, she Robert a, Graves. Right? Yeah, she was a modernist poet, and mm-hmm. at, a, at a certain point she stopped writing poetry and wrote, she wrote a book called Poet, A Lying Word. And then she stopped writing poetry, and I was always rather annoyed about that. But she wrote a book called The Telling. And during the time that I had the postpartum depression, I read The Telling and uh, copied out passages from it uh, and read it very intensely. And she enjoins people to try to remember before they were born. Mm. It's, and she thinks everyone should try to do this, and that... And that we must all have this common memory, and that we could remember where we came from. And it's a, it's a really, it's a it's a really interesting idea. Uh, people must tell each other what they know about it. So, uh, for the talk, I was I was trying to do that. But but a lot of the talk is about being just born, and how unpleasant I seem to remember that being. <laughs> Getting slapped and screaming no, and. No, just how humiliating it is. To, to be born, to give birth, uh, how that whole experience is, can be very humiliating, and I think it's probably humiliating for the baby. And to, just to be a baby, and to be being told all the time how you're supposed to behave, being yes. trained, you're trained, yeah. you know, like a dog. It's almost humiliating until I forget. Yes. Until I successfully diminish. Will I ever be everything again? Is being born nothing but a humiliation? And why? What am I allowed to remember now to tell? What does that mean? What am I? What am I allowed to remember now to tell? Yes. Well, how, how am I allowed to remember anything? And I, it's like, is there a power that forbids us to know? Yeah, yeah, it's a secret. And is what it, happened is, before is it like and what a, is happened it a, after. Is yeah. it a social power or is it an uh, archi- archetypal power or a, a, an overarching power that, that doesn't want us to know anything? Yeah, because we were sentient in the womb, right? I guess. <laughs> well, we had, we had some equipment and the equipment was growing. But before the womb, before we were conceived... Before we were conceived... There was something. We came from something. Now, there's a scientific uh, explanation for everything, which is that we came from nothing, and we just became, you know, these cells. But I don't believe it. I don't believe anything that the scientists say about any of it since my father started talking to me from the dead. And, you know, it's, it's changed yeah, my... Yeah, that doesn't make sense, it, right? No, it doesn't make sense. It's changed my view of everything. Well, wow. because I, I know he really he really has spoken to me. It's really him, and sometimes it's like me projecting a voice out into the void, but sometimes it's really him. So you must get accused of being a bit kooky then. 
No, no one's accused me of it yet, but I'm I'm scared of that. Well, if you really believe it, then screw them. Well, there, we need a lot of other testimony in life. <laughs> you know, we just don't. This planet is misery at the moment, and it's it's just it's becoming so awful, and uh, everyone is doing terrible things to each other and to the planet, and uh, you know it's we're in a very bad place. On the other hand, there's a lot of information that we don't have, and if that's that kind of information, the spiritual information, why can't we be talking to each other about that sometimes? Well, that's the role of religion, I guess. Well, religion, I mean, religion is like, is power. It's about people, mm -hmm. people in positions of power. Yeah, the, the, the people with the known unknowns. The, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's these ancient power structures, 2,000-year power structures, and some guys in skirts telling everybody what to do. Okay. <laughs> so there really, yeah, there really isn't a forum for people who aren't religious who want to talk about the fact that they're hearing voices from the dead. Well, poetry's a forum for that. Poetry admits, of, admits that kind of information into it because it creates this intermediary space, the, this space that's kind of between uh, the material and the non-material, and everything kind of slides around inside of it, and you can say all sorts of things and look at them and see, see what they're worth. That's one of the things poetry does. That's interesting. Yes, I think that's a good uh, definition. Just winding down here. This is just another line to, to, to display how funny you can be in your talk. That talk, I should mention, it's called Remember Before You Were Born, Why Remember What? What you say is, look at this, a toy, a rubber something. Try to like it. <laughs> I know, I found that very funny when I read it, but nobody else laughed. <laughs> Didn't they? No. no. <laughs> I thought it was great. No, because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. It was actually quite successful. It was a, it was a very successful talk, and there, there was a lot of conversation afterwards. There was a lot of question and answer. But it, it certainly wasn't anyone what anyone was expecting on any level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, again, it's not... It's, it's a poem. I was going to say, it's, it's kind of a long-form... Home. Well, it's what I just said. It's like you you put this stuff out there and see what kind of sense it makes and see whether people can respond to it or not. Mm -hmm. And people did respond to it. I just want to finish off by talking a bit about this Descent of a Lat, which has been described as a great epic, a great female epic. Yes. So is there a, a section of it that you enjoy reading particularly? or I like reading all of it. So how much of it do you want me to read? The, Whatever you section? feel like reading, however much or however little. One day, I awoke and found myself on a subway, endlessly. I didn't know how I'd arrived there or who I was exactly, but I knew the train, knew riding it, knew the look of those about me. I gradually became aware, though it seemed as that happened, that I'd always known it too, that there was a tyrant, a man in charge of the fact that we were below the ground, endlessly riding our trains, never surfacing. A man who would make you pay so much to leave the subway that you don't ever ask how much it is. It is, in effect, all of you and more, most of which you already pay to live below, but he would literally take your soul 
which is what you are below the ground. Your soul, your soul rides this subway. I saw on the subway a world of souls. A mother and child were both on fire continuously. The fire was contained in them, sealed them off from others, but you could see the flame, halo of short flame all about the conjoined bodies who sat. They sat apart on a seat for two at end of car. The ghost of the father sat in flames beside them, paler flames, sat straight ahead, looking straight ahead, not moving. A woman, another woman, in a uniform from above the ground, entered the train. She was fireproof. She was gloves, and she took the baby, took the baby away from the mother, extracted the burning baby from the fire they made together, but the baby still burned, but not yours. It didn't happen to you. We don't know yet if it will stop burning, said the uniformed woman. The burning woman was crying. She made a form in her mind, an imaginary form to settle in her arms where the baby had been. We saw her fiery arms cradle air. She cradled air. They take your children away if you're on fire. In the air that she cradled, it seemed to us there floated a flower-like a red flower, its petals, curling flames, she cradled, seemed to cradle the burning flower of herself gone, her life. She saw whatever she saw, but what we saw was that flower. When I was born, I was born now, fully grown on heroin. When I was born, fully grown in the universe of no change, nothing grows up from. Who sings this? Whose voice? This person is in a shadow down at the end of the platform. I can't see him at all. He continues his song. When I was born, I was now. When I was born, I'm not allowed to remember when I was the little baby in a darkness, joy of darkness. Was I the cub for an instant? If so, only an instant before I was a soldier, before I was a soldier. Where is the battlefield? At a station, no longer in use. Train goes right past it, but veterans know how to get in. In that station is kept a piece of a battlefield of the old war. In that station grow white flowers, huge blossoms that are faces, with eyes closed, lashes closed white, White skin, white hair, soldiers go there, call to the victim flowers. They don't answer, but seem to grow. The soldiers water them, water the flowers, which were their own victims. When I was born, I was born now. When I was born, I'm not allowed to remember if I was the little baby, the little boy. Was I the cub for an instant, or was I already a soldier? Thank you. And that soldier was your brother. Yes. My brother just died when I wrote this. Yeah, you went walking and yeah. traveling throughout the subways, right? Yes, there were a lot of Vietnam vets in the subway. And they were homeless. They had become the homeless people of the 80s, the late 80s in New York. 
That's how they were treated after they fought for their country. Well, they didn't know how to be in society. It's hard to know whether they were treated a certain way or whether they were just alienated. It's hard, it was hard to talk about, and it was hard to know what it was. So this, this poem, was did it, did it write itself or not? No. No, no you worked very hard I, at this one. I worked on it for a couple of years. <laughs> right. It was really hard. And this is the one your, your mom didn't want you to write? No, the one she didn't want me to write was the one where I told exactly what Albert did. The phosphorus? Uh, no, it's uh, it's in Mysteries of Small Houses. It's in here somewhere. It's this one, September, September 17th, August 29th, 88. That's the title? That's the title. Should I read it? How long is it? Oh, it's about four or five minutes. Do you feel like reading it? I don't know. It'll probably really freak me out, but I haven't read it in a long time. Okay. And it seems to be pertinent. Mm-hmm. September 17 slash August 29, 88. We get out of the car, and I think I see him. He waves, coming from a woods. Looks like our dad, shape of head, and current slenderness mustache, is wearing dark glasses. Hugs. There's only going to be gladness at seeing each other. We go into lobby of rehab. Margaret and I get visitor's tags. Girl asks if we're twins. Al has to give up our birthday presents for him. He says he can't stand to be in inside. We climb a hill and sit down on a bench. Occasional interchanges with other patients who walk or jog past. Mostly we talk about Vietnam, some about our family. In the afternoon, We've left and come back with Fred. We sit in a meadow, same subject matter, some of the same stories. I'll fuse them. In the morning, he was shaky, but not in the afternoon. I come back up here all the time. They know where to find me. Even if I'm not supposed to be here, so it's okay. It's just like Nam, but we'd hear crickets all night there. I hated them. The nights were terrible, every night. I never wanted it to be night, just day. The tank story. He's in Quang Tri. Usually he's the gunner, but today for an unremembered reason, the driver. There's something called white phosphorus, which he's so scared of that he always fires it off first to get rid of it. Today's gunner doesn't. What happens is a shell drops into the small top opening of the compartment where the gunners are. Albert hears their screams and knows everyone is frying from white phosphorus. He goes for the escape hatch on the bottom, but it won't open for long, long seconds. Finally, he gets out. Everyone else is dead, of course. This is the subject of his most long-standing nightmare and first point of guilt, this escape. I thought I'd be safe in a tank, but after that I didn't want to get in one again. We asked him how he became a sniper. They came around asking for volunteers. They said, you're a volunteer and you're a volunteer. I was a good shot, good with guns. They thought I was good. I wanted to be outside. So they sent us down to sniper school. The snipers would go in ahead, take a village, then others would follow. Snipers had to kill civilians and it started to seem like murder. I must have killed 49 or 50 civilians. You see a mama san with a baby, you shoot first and ask questions later, she might be carrying explosives. But they wouldn't count the civilians in their body count. They only wanted the NVA. They'd ask if you got any, but wouldn't write it down. Al witnessed executions by the Phoenix program. 
They'd come in after we took a village. They had a list of people to kill. They'd pull up their hair and shoot them in the head. They'd put down, say, the mayor of a village that was sympathetic to the communists, but you could also bribe them to kill someone in your business you disliked. The Phoenix program was CIA-affiliated. Later in Needles, Dickie Roten confirms that Albert was in the LRR and a lot of what he did was top secret. He has a double record, one with blanks. Al thinks that at a certain point he was supposed to die because he knew too much about the killing of civilians, Operation Phoenix, and so on. Members of his sniper unit stopped ever coming back from missions. Everything everyone was sent on was incredibly dangerous. Then we went into Laos. The fighting never stopped. The Vietnamese army was supposed to show up, but they never did. I got left back with 150 men. If you were left back, it was pretty much assumed you would die. Finally, everyone was dead except for me and this other guy. We decided there wasn't any sense in staying since everyone else was dead. We went back to Quang Tri. It took about seven days, around 30 miles walking involved. They caught fish and ate them raw. He didn't know the guy he was with and never saw him again. When I got back, they were getting ready to send out an MIA to mom and dad. They sent me instantly into North Vietnam. Then I knew they wanted to be rid of me. I think this is when Albert Trujillo was killed. Albert Trujillo was Albert's best friend in Vietnam. He was from New Mexico. He and Albert had sworn to keep each other alive. NB, our dad, also named Al Albert Notley, had had a best friend named Albert Trujillo in Prescott when he was Albert's age. But Al's friend Albert was killed because their sergeant was too slow and scared to cover him. He let it happen out of fear. Albert had held a gun then to the sergeant's head and told him, if you say one word. Albert brought the body bag back. The last thing he remembers from North Vietnam is shooting in a circle all around himself. He got picked up by a chopper, went back to Quang Tri, but it had fallen, makes his way down to the south, and is eventually shipped home. I love my brother so much this visiting day, but wonder if he doesn't know too much to live. He's been remembering and remembering. The therapists want him to remember even more, but he doesn't want to. He wants to go home and see his kids. I wonder how he can have a future. I want to be able to sit around some kitchen table with him, but can't picture that. I wonder if he could be the way he was, happier and lighter, before he started remembering, but I don't think so. He emanates too much knowledge, power. His self is huge, bigger than any I've ever witnessed. His boundaries are too painful and too small. They keep him where he remembers. They keep his knowledge concentrated, personal. He must get rid of this self now, but I don't know how he will. Yet escapes faded, written already. We all know it and don't know it. Hmm. How are you feeling? <laughs> A little teary. Yeah. Uh, then he went home to Needles and died of an accidental overdose. It's funny, when you were reading that, I was almost fearing that, that someone was going to kill him, <laughs> you know, because he knew too much. Well, someone did kill him. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the whole structure kills you. It just, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just too much. It's too much. Too much is asked of people. Too much is asked of men.
That poem was quite different from uh, Descent of a Lad. Yes. It was very... I, I read it later. I, I kept the... I made notes after, I, after the visit, and I kept the notes. And then when I was writing Mysteries of Small Houses, which is uh, it's, it's their poems remembering things, I, I realized that that had to be in the book, that this, this moment had to be in the book, and I just made it from the notes. It's like it's his words at this point. Because Descent of Alette is, a, is like a, it's a dream almost, a dream vision, you call it, right? Well, it's a really long poem. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a very small, it's 143 pages. Mm-hmm. I read all of it a year and a half ago in San Francisco. It was recorded. It took two and a half hours over two nights. It's very long, and there are a lot of changes in it. A lot happens, and there's a quite interestingly delineated story, totally invented. <laughs> Well, it's, it's like the Divine Comedy. It's an inversion of the Divine Comedy, because you go down instead of up. In the Divine Comedy, you go down and then you go up. Yeah. And in this one, you go down, and then you go down further, and then you go down further, then she rescues everyone and brings them all back up to the surface. So it's, it's continuous descent. You said that the poem framed everything I was, like Blake's vision. I said that. You said that. And you used uh, initiating images from dreams. Yes, I guess mm. that's true. But I wasn't being myself. I'm not myself in it. There's a character in it who does everything. Nothing that happens in it is real. What do you mean? None of it really took place? or None of it really t- took place. It's all dream action. Right. It's all symbolic. So what's next? <laughs> um, I have a lot of manuscripts that haven't been published. I would like to get some of them published. Most recently, I had cancer a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and then uh, it seemed to me that I had no idea what had happened to me, if anything, for the past 17 years. So I started writing these poems, trying to locate what had happened in my life for the last 17 years, because I, I had stopped writing about myself in that way. And I, I didn't know if there was anything going on or not. So I wrote a whole lot of poems that are about the last 17 years. About your life in Paris. Yes, but they, they're, they're, they're quite interesting because I couldn't write about anything without referring to the past. And sometimes I would refer to the past and then refer further back into the past. And nothing made sense as itself right now. It, it, it was, everything was dependent on other things. And so it was quite interesting to deal with that. So I have this manuscript sitting around and I have all these works and they need to, it's just sitting there. I finished it last summer, and then I started writing something else, but I, I'm probably going to go back to it next and try to get it in order and find all the places that need to be changed, the little revision points, and see what it is and see if I need to write more. It's about 100 pages. Do you like living in Paris? Hard to say. <laughs> I never know what to say. <laughs> uh, Paris is a fascinating city. I don't have any friends, really, and so it's all, uh, my being there is always contradictory. Mm-hmm. And I'm there for practicalities. I'm there because I need the medical system. I'm there because I have an apartment. I really like Parisians. I really like French, French culture in a lot of ways. And you speak the language fluently and without, um, without problem? Pretty much. Sometimes mm-hmm. it goes away. Sometimes it's better than others. I learned it, I learned it very late in life. I had, only, I had had a year in college. And then I didn't go there until I was 47. So it's not a very good time to learn a language. And I, I was always writing in English. 
that I was living with an English man for the first eight years I was there. So everything was in English. And he always used to say that he resisted learning French. Although when he died in the hospital, he died in French, basically. And he was speaking French with the nurses and doctors every day. Did you want to come back to the United States or not? It's hard to say. I was, I was very shocked that this had happened to me a second time, that my husband had died that I had had a good marriage and then my husband had died. And I was just starting to feel a little better and possibly to think about whether or not I wanted to go back. And I got diagnosed with hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And then I had to do, I had been carrying it around for 32 years and I was almost into cirrhosis. And I had to do this really grueling medical treatment. So I did the treatment for 11 months. I wrote a book called In the Pines. After that, I knew I would probably never leave because I was always going to have medical things uh, to, to deal with. I was getting older, and it was going to be hard for me to set myself up inside the American medical system. So I'm, an, I'm a medical immigrant. Sir, have you said everything you wanted to say? In, in poetry? In poetry, yeah. Oh, there's always more to say because you keep living. No, there, because there's a lot I still don't know. I'm always trying to find things out. I'm always trying to find out what happened at the beginning, if there was a beginning, you know, and I, I just keep going back to that kind of thing. I want to know what language we all spoke before we were born. That's going to be a tough one to answer. <laughs> well, I have a theory that if I keep asking the dead people what language they speak, they'll tell me. Yeah, they'll just say, shut up, Alice, okay already. <laughs> right. <laughs> My, my feeling is that they have to translate themselves into my language in order to talk to me when they do. The first time I heard my father talk to me, it was as if he was translating everything into this very simple English. And I could, I could hear it happening. And, but it, he was doing it in my voice. It was so strange. It was, he was, I heard this voice that was my voice saying these things. And I, I instantly knew it was him. It was like taking place in some part of, part of my brain that, that was sort of divorced from me, and I was watching it. I was watching the conversation, overhearing it. Almost like an out-of-body experience. It was a little bit like that, yes. It was like I was here, and the conversation was here, and like there, there was him, and there was me. But then me, the watcher, was here, and they were talking. It was quite uncanny. <laughs> That's how I know it, it was real, that it, 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 it was so particular that way. When's the last time this happened? That way, it's never happened again, mm. precisely that way. I don't know, I just sort of talk to them all the time. And there are different people I talk to. There are different people that present themselves to me. I don't know them all. Well, I hope you get an answer to your question. <laughs> I do too. Thanks very much for taking the time You're to welcome. talk. You're welcome. I've been speaking with uh, Alice Notley, who has written more than 25 books of poetry. Maybe more than 30. Maybe more than 30 now. Maybe as many as 40. And you've also written some criticism. Yes. And some plays. Okay. And an autobiography. Yes. yes. And you've won, among others, the Griffin International Poetry Prize. Yes. Courtesy of Scott Griffin, right. Canadian. <laughs> yes. I won a Canadian prize. International prize. Yes. It's, in fact, it's one of the biggest prizes yes. in poetry, financially, anyway. Uh, it wasn't as big then as then. it is now. Yeah, unfortunately. And it was in Canadian dollars. Oh, dear. 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks again. You're welcome.